For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Your key to financial opportunity. several times through the windshield. The officers survived and radioed a description of the car and its occupants. They continued west, getting off the interstate at Levant, apparently to ditch their car and get another. They chose an isolated grain elevator company. When they got to the grain elevator company, they shot through the window, wounding the office manager. Then they took two men hostage and left in a pickup truck. The bodies of the hostages were found about a mile north. Both had been shot in the face. One of the slain men was 55-year-old Glenn Moore, who lived in this house in Colby. Today, his wife and children were not only mourning, but angry. This makes me very angry that this has happened to my loved one. That these kids have just took my husband and killed him, murdered him, dumped him out the side of the road, I understand. And, I mean, he's done nothing wrong. He's totally innocent. He was there and... He was... My husband, we worked with grain elevators, and my husband was on the job, doing his job to this elevator. And they just come up and threw my husband in the pickup and left. And took him, and then they killed him along the road. And I was just angry. Law officers trailed the assailants to an unoccupied farmhouse and surrounded it. A shootout erupted, and one of the suspects was killed. Two others were wounded. The three survivors were taken to jail in Colby, a town of 5,000. Friends and neighbors of the local victims want swift justice. I think they ought to hang them or something like that. Well, I wish they'd just called me and let me have my, my rifle and go after them. Authorities say the three surviving suspects will be charged with murder and kidnapping. Al Dale, ABC News, Colby, Kansas. Chapter 1. Mad Dogs. To understand America, you must understand highways. 
In this half century, these masochistic marbles have, along with telephones, television, and jet planes, reshaped American culture. Robert Samuelson, The Washington Post, June 25th, 1986. Interstate 70, otherwise known as I-70, is a major east-west interstate highway that runs from Cove Fort, Utah to just outside Baltimore, Maryland. I-70 approximately traces the path of U.S. Route 40, the old national road. The interstate runs through many major cities, including Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Kansas City, Topeka, and Denver. With sections of the interstate in Missouri and Kansas laying claim to be the first interstate in the United States. The last piece of the interstate highway system was laid into place with the completion of I-70 in 1992. Heading east on the Lewis and Clark Viaduct through downtown Kansas City, Missouri, the highway crosses the Kansas River, passing over the former stockyards and rail yards of Kansas City, Kansas. About halfway between Kansas City and Topeka, I-70 passes through Lawrence, home of the University of Kansas, before it carries on to Salina. It is here that I-70 has been given the nickname, the Main Street of Kansas, as the highway continues to extend from the eastern border to the western border of the state, covering 424 miles, as it passes through most of the state's principal cities in the process. As I-70 crosses the prairie, farmlands, and the rolling hills of Kansas towards Colorado, this portion of I-70 was the first segment to start being paved and to be completed in the interstate highway system. And between Topeka and Denver, 539 miles away, there is little more to pass than time. And as US-40 now lies under I-70, the many picnic spots along the old National Road remain solely as hunting grounds for the countless red-tailed hawks that inhabit this desolate corridor. But right in the center lies a self-proclaimed oasis, Colby, Kansas where if motorists get distracted by something on the radio, a news story, or a ballad for three to four minutes, and miss that exit, they won't have another chance to eat for hours. The stretch I-70 may be, nonetheless. If there ever was a calling to go west, today, the highway serves as a popular route for traveling across the Great Plains for the mountains of Colorado, making it an essential contributor to the state of Kansas and its local economies. As for more than 50 years, I-70 has helped boost the agriculture industry, as local farmers are able to get food to Kansans more easily. But agriculture, shipping, and easy access to the powdery western slope of the Rockies have not been the only boost to society the interstate system has provided, but a surge in criminal activity across the country. In the second half of the 20th century, the United States witnessed an unprecedented crime wave, with a total index crime rate more than tripling between 1960 in 1980. Most recently, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, the duo responsible for the DC sniper attacks, relied heavily on the highway and were even apprehended on a Maryland stretch of I-70 in 2002. The highway had given its name to the I-70 killer, a serial killer who committed a string of murders within a few miles of it in several Midwestern states back in the early 1990s. And before that, in February of 1995, Headlines from the very prairie oasis of Colby, Kansas, across the nation read, Death rides the highway into Kansas. Grainfield, Kansas. Many who populate this storybook chunk of American heartland, with the endlessly straight rows of corn, neatly painted barns, and carefully tended fences, call the highway just outside of town the sewer pipe. 
Death flowed late last week into northwest Kansas through that sewer pipe, which most other Americans know as Interstate Highway 70. During a two-hour nightmare of screaming tires, hostage-taking, executions, and gunfighting, when the last shot was fired, almost precisely at sundown on Wednesday, four people were dead, two were seriously wounded, and three suspects were in police custody. The article continues on. Signs of carnage still are visible across the 60-mile swath of countryside, stretching from Stucky's restaurant, where the killing spree began, to an unoccupied farmhouse, the final resting place of the bullet-riddled pickup in which one of the four suspects died in the climatic gunfight. There are still red stains in the snow alongside Kansas Highway 25, where the bodies of two hostages were found after each was forced to lie down on the ground and were shot repeatedly in the head with a 357 Magnum. A map outlining the route over which the tragedy was played out was printed in the Colby Free Press throughout Friday, and curious residents drove that map route on grim pilgrimages. And seemingly everywhere, residents spoke of how all the years of dread and mistrust of the strangers who traveled I-70 were more than justified. What do you boys do in your cities that drives people like that out here to torture us? Asked old-timer Bob Ackard, a lifelong resident of Thomas County. What kind of people do you create? What kind of people are these? Monsters. That's what. In an attempt to answer your question, Mr. Ackard, I quote David Norton of the Atlanta Constitution, April 9th, 1967. During the few short years of its existence, the word interstate has become a part of the language of the American motorist. More than any other phenomenon of our time, the interstate highway system has irrevocably altered the way America must see itself. When the interstate comes, can anything once familiar ever be the same? But where had these years of dread and mistrust of the strangers who traveled I-70 actually originated? Well, let's take a look back on January 25, 1958, in Lincoln, Nebraska. A 20-year-old high school dropout named Charles Starkweather went to the home of his then 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. Though her mother and stepfather had told Starkweather to stay away, he walked in the house and fatally shot them, then clubbed to death their two-year-old daughter, Betty Jean before hiding their bodies in an outhouse in a chicken coop and hitting the road with his bride-to-be, young Carol. Arriving at a farmhouse of a family friend in Bennett, Nebraska, Starkweather killed him with a shotgun blast to the head, also killing the family dog. Attempting to flee the area, the pair got their car stuck in the mud and abandoned it. When a local teenage couple stopped to give them a ride, Starkweather forced them to drive back to an abandoned storm cellar in Bennett. There, he shot one of the teens in the back of the head and attempted to rape the girl. When he was unable to perform, he became angry with her and fatally shot her as well, and he and Carol then fled Bennett in the dead couple's car. Starkweather and Fugate drove to a wealthy section of Lincoln, where they entered the home of industrialist Chester Lauer Ward and his wife Clara. Starkweather stabbed their maid to death and then waited for Chester and Clara to return home. Starkweather killed the family dog by breaking its neck to keep it from alerting the wards. Clara arrived first alone and was also stabbed to death. When Chester Ward returned home that evening, Starkweather shot and killed him. While the killers were in the house, the wards' newspaper arrived, and they cut out the front page pictures of themselves and Fugate's dead family. These pictures were found on them later, casting doubt on any later claim by Carol that she didn't know her family was dead at the time. Starkweather and Fugate then filled Ward's black 1956 Packard with stolen jewelry from the house and fled Nebraska. 
law enforcement agents in the region, including the National Guard, conducted house-to-house searches for the perpetrators. After several sightings of Starkweather and Fugate were reported, the Lincoln Police Department was accused of incompetence for being unable to capture the pair. This caused vigilante gangs to form, and the local sheriff started forming a posse by arming drunk men he found in bars. Meanwhile, needing a new car because Ward's Packard had been identified, the couple came upon a traveling salesman sleeping in his Buick along the highway outside of Douglas, Wyoming. After the man was awakened, he was fatally shot. The salesman's car had a parking brake, something new to Starkweather, and while he attempted to drive away, the car stalled because the brake had not been released. He tried to restart the engine, and a passing motorist stopped to help. Starkweather threatened him with a rifle, and an altercation ensued. At that moment, a county sheriff's deputy arrived on the scene. Fugate ran to him, yelling something to the effect of, It's Starkweather. He's going to kill me. Starkweather drove off and was involved in a car chase with three officers, exceeding speeds of 100 miles per hour. A bullet fired by one of the officers shattered the windshield, and flying glass cut Starkweather deep enough to cause bleeding. He stopped, surrendered, and was captured near Douglas on January 29, 1958. One of the officers claimed Starkweather thought he was bleeding to death. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. This deadly romance commenced only 100 miles north of Colby and for 1958 hit entirely too close to home for the isolated community. And though all this went down a good 25 years after the killing of Bonnie and Clyde, the flames of public fear fanned the era's ongoing panic about juvenile delinquency. The era of panic over juvenile delinquency, which itself most likely had been fueled by not only the Bonnie and Clyde escapade, but by those who idealized the two young marauders, could have been born to too many young men who had had the American dream dangled before their nose like a carrot, found their current situations a final determinant of how they would live the rest of their lives in utter poverty and powerlessness, just as Clyde and Mayweather had decided to therefore strive only to satisfy those biological needs and to acquire power over others by any means necessary, settling on a personal philosophy of socioeconomic vengeance. In Mayweather's words, dead people are all on the same level, a bold statement which spread like wildfire across the nation, sending chills down the spines of a generation. And let's take a look at the early morning hours of November 15, 1959, when four members of the Clutter family, Herb Clutter, his wife Bonnie, and their teenage children, Nancy and Kenyon, were murdered in their rural home just outside of the small farming community of Holcomb, Kansas, just two hours to the south of Colby. Two ex-convicts, Perry Smith and Richard Hitchcock, who were found guilty of the murders, sentenced to death and executed as detailed by Truman Capote in his 1966 non-fiction novel, In Cold Blood, had driven more than 400 miles across the state of Kansas for the Clutter residents to execute their plan. As they had been told by a former cellmate, who had been a farmhand for Herb Clutter, that Clutter kept large amounts of cash in his safe. A cinch, as Hitchcock called it. The perfect score. Though having killed all four members of the family, the two fled the crime scene with only a Zenith portable radio belonging to the young teenage Kenyon, a pair of binoculars belonging to Herb, and less than $50 in cash from his wallet. A safe was never found. Hitchcock and Smith fled on Kansas highways to Kansas City, and then they decided to escape to Mexico, where they lived for a short time, and eventually hitchhiked their way through California en route to Omaha, Nebraska. After a brief stay in Omaha, they went to Iowa, where they stole a car and returned to the Kansas City area. 
From Kansas City, they eventually traveled to Florida and Nevada. It was in Nevada where the law finally caught up with them on December 31, 1959. A 1966 article in the New York Times stated that neighborliness evaporated in the Holcomb community. The natural order seemed suspended, chaos poised to rush in. Four decades later, in 2009, 50 years after the Clutter murders, the Huffington Post asked Kansas citizens about the effect the case had on the community. Many respondents said that since that era, many had lost their trust in others. Doors were now locked, strangers eyed with suspicion. Many still felt greatly affected by those Kansas killers and their own great tragedy. February 14, 1985, a Valentine's Day like no other. Those 105 miles due north, Colby residents awoke to a new world, one undoubtedly in their minds, reshaped by the highway itself, that sewer pipe, Interstate 70, which had paved the way for those most dreaded effects of juvenile delinquency, mayhem and murder to once again rain down upon the tranquility of lives now shaken and shattered and bullet-riddled in the wake of a rapidly changing world. Colby still struggled to understand, left with the very question, what do you boys do in your cities that drives people like that out here to torture us? What kind of people do you create? What kind of people are these? But who were those four people? One shot dead in the climax of the multi-state killing spree that culminated in this isolated prairie oasis. Those three others in the county jail, protected only by steel bars, and outnumbered deputies by the growing thirst for vengeance that now turned over on these once quiet streets, which now hummed and buzzed with rage, beckoned forth by the loading of magazines and chambers, twisted rope in hand. Who were these people? According to Colby, monsters. So what more do you need to know? Act 1. Exterior, Western Kansas. Morning. We wake to the undeniable scent of frost-covered cow manure slowly thawing to a brand new day. It's early January, and the snowy region is defined mainly by a flat topography. This is reflective of the high plains. Interestingly, the highest elevation in Kansas, owing to the state's nickname, Mount Sunflower, is not a mountain at all. Along the Kansas Interstate I-70 corridor, a hungry red-tailed hawk with beady eyes scans the horizon for vermin as his shadow whisks across the prairie below, hardening with the rising sun. Any riverbeds across the land have dried up to gravel this time of year. Patches of tan, pale yellow, and burnt umber peek through the fresh layer of snow as the screech of the hawk carries off in the breeze. Then a return to that silence that dwells between the roar of passing 18-wheelers coming, going, and vanishing into the vastness of the horizon. Forget Texas. Everything's bigger here in Kansas. The people of western Kansas do everything big. And just as those horizons, the heartstrings stretch endlessly. Interior. Stuckey's Grainfield. Stuckey's is a restaurant souvenir shop. Picture a slimmed-down cracker barrel that sells gas. We see a friendly bunch beginning their day, fellows that will lend you their snowblower in a blizzard, help you round up your chickens if they get loose, leave fresh veggies on your porch just because, and check on you when you're sick. Kansans will always have your back. This is a bunch who anticipate one another's daily routines, 
as a predictable world is one they prefer and relish within, day in, and day out. The coffee maker hisses off its last few dribbles into the pot as bacon grease sizzles. As is routine, a group of regulars has gathered around a table for an early morning game of six-point cutthroat pitch as they discuss the news in the morning paper. On this day, Wednesday, January the 13th, 1985, the discussion is on farm foreclosures in Gove County. In the background, the radio knob has been twisted past a plentitude of some good old country music, a sermon on the mount, and past the garble of a distant 80s rock station, before settling upon Kansas farm and ranch radio. Larry McFarland, a boyish-looking 27-year-old, the same man who had just adjusted the volume on the old Zenith radio, now refills awaiting mugs with a fresh pot of coffee. Larry is the manager of the Grainfield Stuckies, and has been since his raise six months back. We can see his dedication to the job in the details and in his mannerisms, almost motherly to any of the 400 locals of the community, which sits 35 miles to the southeast of Colby on I-70. And the community loves Larry in return, he had only begun working at the Stuckies after moving to the area about three years ago, after graduating with a business degree from the University of Kansas. Nonetheless, the people of Grainfield thought of Larry as a local boy, and at the end of March, Larry is even set to become the local Lions Club president. It is these good-natured and dependable traits that earn Larry his raise. It's Stuckey's company policy that Larry lives next to the store, and he complies. It is also company policy that he opens the store at 8 a.m., but Larry always opens by 7 instead for his friends. And like clockwork, earlier this morning, Larry had left his small white apartment attached to the back of the Stuckey's restaurant to come in early for this lot who preferred to have their coffee and breakfast at the early hour of 7 instead of 8 a.m. Larry, a 6-foot tall, weighing 240 pounds, leans across the table to ensure every cup is full to the brim entirely focused on that task at hand. But Larry is keenly aware of the dangers of living and working near the highway, and he keeps an ear out for the brass bell that greets every customer to enter the store. His mother, Geneva McFarland, whom Larry routinely stops by to care for, has been terribly ill, had even recently asked him as much. Larry, what would you do if there was ever a robbery? And Larry told her, as right as rain, that he would hand the money right over. Because even with Larry's hefty build, he is anything but an imposing guy, with his tousled reddish-brown hair and thick-rimmed glasses. It doesn't really matter now, his mother Geneva will go on to say as she breaks down and sobs. The clock ticks nearly 9.45 a.m. A local couple, Ethel and Gilbert Bibb Gillespie, stand up to leave. Larry, who now stands behind the counter, waiting on the slower-than-usual trickle of customers, who swing in for a refill off the highway, shouts at them across the restaurant that he'll see them later this afternoon, as they are due back at three with the rest of the gang for another late game of pitch, as is customary. But little does Ethel and Bib know that they will never see their friend Larry alive again. As for whatever reason, be it winter, fewer cars on the road, or because Ethel will be tired and want to take an afternoon nap, or because of a simple twist of fate, nobody will show up at the Stuckies this afternoon. And for that second game of cutthroat, not even those regulars, who themselves begin to gather up the cards and finish off their last cups of coffee for the morning. It was like something was pulling us away from there, Ethel will tell the Wichita Eagle. Exterior, Stuckey's, Afternoon. A 1970 Pontiac with Michigan license plate number 
296-CLK arrives at Stuckey's from the east. And as a man and a woman wait in the car, two other men enter the store. As the clock on the wall behind Larry gets lost somewhere between 3 and 3.30 p.m., Larry grins automatically at the brass bell on the door that breaks up the monotony of the unusually slow day. The two men take a stroll around the store and return to slam a roll of wintermint lifesavers down on the counter as one asks for some smokes. Vantage. Soft pack. And when Larry turns back to ring up the bill, he finds two chrome barrels pointed at his head. Now whether Larry McFarlane resisted is not known. What is known is that a young high school student named Jim Cooper wanders into Stuckey's at about 3.45 p.m. and finds his friend Larry's bloody body, riddled with bullet holes, lying dead in a heap on the floor. He was going to be 28 next week, his mother will say, trembling. Exterior I-70, Afternoon The long distances between communities make any gatherings in western Kansas of two or more all the more intimate and those voids between even lonelier. In cruising through Thomas County along the corridor, the passing semi-tractors, oil pumps on the periphery, and the rolls of hay patterned in ambiguous alignment that break up the monotony of the prairie are the only things keeping Deputy Sheriff Ben Albright company on his routine patrol, all but his police radio which squawks here and there. The sun shines bright in the lower western brilliant blue sky, and the deputy squints for any oncoming speeders making their way back east after a skiing vacation on the Colorado Front Range, which lies out of sight over the horizon before him. The rays of that hot sun glistening off the frozen prairie, warm on his face on that chill day through the windshield, as the disorienting flatness carries on and on, on yet another unchanging day. Abiding in command of nature, the silhouette of a large herd of pronghorn, in the same shade as the land, tails white as frost, in a speed up to 60 miles per hour, cross the highway in a breeze before his squad car, in search of sagebrush and forbs, as they wait patiently on the young tender grasses of spring to return. Ben Albright, a Colby native, was born and raised with three sisters and two brothers by his mother after his father's fatal heart attack when he was four. He would go on to receive multiple degrees in law enforcement, and in 1979, while working for the Oakley Police Department, at the scene of a crash, he met the woman he would marry, Pat. It was a time of many changes for the couple. When Ben left the Oakland Police Department for a patrol job in Colby, he was transferred to the Thomas County Sheriff's Department within a year. In the meantime, Ben became a father of Pat's two daughters from a previous marriage. But not all the news was good as Ben's mother was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1981, which later spread to her bones. What helped Ben endure the tragedies as well as the joys, what kept him calm and rational throughout the crises of his life, and what happened Wednesday afternoon was a fervent belief in God, Pat will go on to say. The Albrights regularly attend the Assembly Church of God in Colby, and just last Sunday, three days prior, Ben and Pat took care of the children in the church nursery. Today, the 13th, Ben had a lot on his mind when he arrived at the office. He had a lot of warrants and summons to write up. And Pat, she had gone off to run errands. Interior, Sheriff's Department, 3.30 p.m. Pat was near the Sheriff's Department, so she figured she'd stop in to have coffee with Ben. But as she walks in, dispatcher Mary Messamore tells Pat that Ben is on patrol adding that there had been a shooting in Grainfield. 
The police radios are humming, and as Pat listens, she hears Ben's scanner handle number 127 mentioned several times by another Kansas Highway Patrol officer. The trooper says that he had been refueling when he saw a 1970 red and blue car that looked funny, like someone had stuck a different hood on it, speeding westward. Knowing Ben is in the area, he issues a call for handle number 127 to check it out. Pat listens as her husband Ben falls in behind the old car, pushing hard down the westward lane of I-70. As they had put nearly 50 miles between themselves and the Stuckey's restaurant in only minutes. Ben states over the radio that he thinks he has just caught another speeder hurrying for Colorado, just east of Levant, a town of 200 or so, 8 miles to the west of Colby. Pat hears as he turns on his siren, and Ben follows the car down the Levant exit ramp. Ben gives the command over the public address for the car's occupants to shut the car off and knowing there had been a shooting, to hold their hands out of the car's window. Suddenly Pat fears that Ben is facing a far different situation than usual, and her worst fears are confirmed as she hears four distant shots fired. She hears rustling and squelch, and then two more shots at close range. Her heart drops. And after a long moment of deafening silence, the sound of rubber squealing off the shoulder back onto the pavement, a shocked Pat listens as Ben makes the call for an ambulance, saying he has been shot in the chest and arm. He offers a clear and concise description of his assailants and the automobile, even though one of his lungs is steadily collapsing, and their direction of travel, the small hamlet of Levant and its unassuming souls. I was never in fear of dying, Ben will go on to say from his hospital bed. I could tell I was right in the hand of the Lord right there, on the shoulder of I-70. Exterior, Levant, late afternoon. An old long bed pickup truck sits outside the Barlett and Company grain elevator on the very edge of town where vastness carries on. Two laborers stand beside the truck chatting. Interior, grain elevator office. Manager Morris Christie and Fred Sager, an employee, hear the roaring sound of an exhausted engine and tires on gravel screeching to a halt only a few yards from the office's front door. Peering out that door, Fred speaks softly, saying, Those guys have guns, and the two of them step back away from the doorway. But Fred continues watching out the window as two men in black cowboy hats step out of the car as another man and a woman who sits in the driver's seat wait in the car. Fred sees Rick Schroeder, who is chatting with Glenmore near Glenn's truck, offer a genuine smile as he turns toward the armed men moving in toward him, as it would have been against his nature to do anything else. At age 28, Rick is loved enormously in his little town. He is a big man, standing 6'2 tall and well over 200 pounds. Rick is a good man who has only good to say about anyone or to anyone. A super prince of a guy, anyone will say. If you need help, he is there. When you need a friend, he is there. The kind of guy you can call at midnight if you run your truck into a ditch. And he will be there in 15 minutes flat, even in the winter. Rick plays on the town's baseball team, and though he works in the church all year, he always has time for his kids. Just a little over a year ago, he and his wife Brenda bought a little house outside of town, not far from his parents' farm. They stayed there even after the nearby farm he managed went out of business. It had been tough. He was suddenly out of work for months before taking the elevator job about three weeks ago. He had been coming over to the elevator and drinking coffee with the guys every morning for years, and they were glad to have him come to work here. When the car had roared into the lot, 
Rick had been talking with Glenmore about a broken auger in the grain dryer. Mr. Moore runs an elevator repair operation and has been battling the thing for days. However, regarding personal style, Glenmore 56 is Rick's opposite. He reared four boys in nearby Colby and has earned one of the highest reputations available in northwestern Kansas. Glenn is a quiet man. He minds his own business and works hard. And that is a lot to say about any man. Now, on this late Wednesday afternoon, Fred watches from the office window as Rick and Glenn have turned together to face the two armed strangers in black cowboy hats, who seem to be waving their guns around wildly for no rhyme or reason. Rick tries to joke with the two men and has that big smile on his face, and he sort of looks at them like this is all a joke, like there is no way this could be happening, like no one would do something like this here in Levant, Kansas. Meanwhile, looking out the office window, Fred is further shocked as the strangers start pushing Rick and Glenn toward Glenn's truck, and suddenly, Rick isn't smiling anymore. Manager Morris Christie knows they are in trouble and grabs the phone and frantically starts to dial when one of the gunmen notices Fred trying to pull the blinds to cover the window. Fred dives to the floor as the gunman rushes toward the office. As the back window of the office is knocked out, glass shatters to the floor where Fred lays, as quietly as he can, shielded from the windows by a soft drink machine and a thick wooden counter. He listens as three shots ring out from the front door, but Morris doesn't know that he's been shot twice in the back, one bullet coming to a rest just inches from his heart, that is, until he starts coughing up blood. Fred figures that he is as good as dead, as who he feels is the leader of the bunch, peers into the office for someone else to shoot. Fred fears for his life, huddled out of sight behind that counter, thinking to himself, I'm a dead man. I'm gone, gone, gone. When suddenly the shooter says, We got them all. Let's go. Exterior. Grain elevator. Rick has always loved the wide open country. An outdoorsman, good with his hands, and he loves to farm with his father, so much so that Rick's mother Betty used to say that he and his father were little boys playing in the dirt. With his stature, he was a star football player for the Brewster Bulldogs. Rick is an optimist. He likes to think that things are going to be alright, and it has been a typical day for Rick, who is due to get off work any minute. But as one of the suspects says to Rick, get in the back, punk, with a nod of his barrel. Suddenly, neither his brute strength nor consistent positivity seems to make any difference in life. Glenmore is also forced into the bed of his own damn truck. Though he is also a sturdy man with giant arms and a round belly, he has a full, kind face and thin gray hair around his temples. He is married, has four sons, whom he loves to take fishing on weekend trips. Sometimes they will never catch anything, though they have good times nonetheless. Glenn grows vegetables in his backyard, once growing a nine-pound cantaloupe and a two-pound tomato. He built a smoker out of an old refrigerator that he keeps in the shed out back, where he often smokes meat for neighbors and friends for free. Until last week, Glenn had had a bad case of the flu, and Glenn is not a man to lie about in bed all day, but he was not able to go out on the job until last Monday, the 11th, when for the first time in a month, he was able to work for a good part of the day. Glenn is neither a man who goes out and buys things, but on Tuesday night, he surprised his wife when for the first time since they were married 30 years ago, he bought her a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day. His wife Milton will say tearfully, he was more likely to give me $30 and say go out and buy yourself a pair of slacks. The motley crew climb into the truck, 
two in the back beside their hostages when the pickup roars out of the gravel lot. Off on the periphery, Glenn's son and fishing partner, Wesley Moore, appears and watches in utter disbelief as his father is taken away by armed men. But when a nearby electric company meter reader sees the pickup peel out in a plume of dust, he dismisses it as just another scuffle between managers and laborers, entirely unaware that what is leaving Levan is far more than an old beat-up pickup truck vanishing in the clouds of dust against the setting sun. Exterior, 2 miles north of Levant, 4.30 p.m. In a ditch along the gravel road, two bodies lie with their faces pressed against the bloodied snow. Each man has been shot in the back of the head multiple times. The wounds so massive, the damage so severe, neither victim is left recognizable as they are found by an officer who knows them. It is apparent that both Rick and Glenn have been executed. There is no other word for it. Exterior, roadblock. As farmers along the highway have called police to report the pickup rowing northward, a highway patrol roadblock has been set up on State Highway 25 at the Thomas Rawlings County line, 20 miles to the north of Colby. Officers take position as on the horizon they spot the pickup approaching in their crosshairs, fingers slowly resting on the triggers of their rifles. But suddenly, the shooters spin around and head back to the south, back toward the posse that has been hot on their tail. Exterior, farmhouse, sunset. The truck swings into the yard of an old farmhouse about 17 miles north of Colby. The passengers of the gaudy red and blue Pontiac come out shooting to kill. As Mark Convoy, the state trooper who has been in close pursuit, opens fire in return, and other officers join in the battle between the assailants' pistols and their own, along with rifles and a shotgun. The blasts are deafening, and a torrent of lead screeching in each direction smacks into the truck and squad cars. The shooters scatter as the hail of bullets whiz past until a bullet pierces the body of one of the suspects who is attempting to crawl under the pickup for cover. The following bullet to tear flesh strikes a dark-complected, shaggy-haired guy with high cheekbones in his late 20s right in the thigh, dropping him to the ground not far from a teenage girl with pale, full cheeks and a full head of thick, wavy, reddish-brown hair. As officers rush in, one pursues a third man, tall, undoubtedly the oldest of the bunch, in his early 30s, but looks much older with long hair and a grisly beard, who flees around a shed where he falls in the snow, dropping his gun. He gets back up and struggles in the drift as he tries to escape, only to be caught by the pursuing officer, and it is all over by 5.45 p.m. Sitting on her knees, with a bullet wound of her own in her ass, and kind of rocking back and forth, holding herself in a hug, not far from the teen lying dead under the truck, the girl cries out, I love you, Danny. I love you. As Danny, nearly hissing as the trooper presses a knee to the nape of his neck with fierce black eyes and white-knuckled fists, now shackled, Danny shouts back, I love you too, Lisa. Don't worry about it. You know everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. 
fade to black. Full of adrenaline, fleeing in whatever direction had laid before them, in one last shot of freedom, striving to keep that vengeance alive, dark hearts pumped in a strange land of strange folks, people who undoubtedly had not responded kindly to strange beasts drawing blood upon their pure white prairie. Colby, the county seat of Thomas County, is a small city of 5,000 that welcomes with open arms, a friendly nod in the least, a righteous enough people. Anglo-Saxon, Native American, Mexican, born, bred, transplanted, field workers, newcomers, those passing through or simply looking to make a living. Colby's streets are pretty insulated in the winter, from the hum of the traffic that flows down that sewer pipe, as they call it, I-70. A water tower stands watch, proudly proclaiming their name, Colby. In the evenings, locals gather as they do anywhere in crowded taverns, where coors, snub noses, and bottles of yingling flow free. Still, in the vastness of it all, in this oasis smack dab in the heart of the void of the prairie, humanity concentrates, not only over pints and a few laughs, but over loss and mourning, over the sacrifices of the effort of human survival. In this vastness, had those four bloodthirsty felt more alive than ever, there is something about the realness of this land, the ravenous landscape that accentuates the survival of man by any means, finding the will to live or die, and doing whatever it takes to achieve tomorrow. In the wide open vastness of this space, one can feel what it must be like to be the last one alive on earth. The sky consumes you, swallows your soul, unrelinquishing, leaving man with nothing but the pure animalistic instinct to fight back and never surrender. Not until the end. Not until certainty has become the end. The end of a journey which had led you here to this place, under that sky, with such seeming insignificance. A sudden profound reality, all-encompassing. Amongst these forces of nature, the face of humanity trembles. And grace, in all its meaning, is all there is left to hold on to. Out here, where the cities had long turned into towns, towns to villages, villages to clusters of man, whittled down to finally one sole farmhouse, slouched on a rock. Nothing, 
nothing to insulate from those raw forces of nature but delusion and the will one might muster. In a place as such, one must feel the tremble to feel so alive, because to feel so alive is to feel how it's the only one thing you have left to lose. All tenderness is gone. Within this fragility, mortality, at the end of the day, one is driven forth on the fumes of human willpower alone. In such places where life is scarce, death becomes more poignant. Where the very beauty of the land pleads for you to relinquish your soul, the splendor of nature calling forth like a siren to your own demise. Had they sensed serendipity or extreme regret? Had they felt they had taken a wrong turn? Or had they hit the target right on its mark? On the verge of death so far off and away in such a foreign land, wholly removed from everything native, everything ever known, and everyone who's ever loved. In a land of freedom, liberty, and independence, only that hawk keeps a watchful eye over whether they might live or die, and even that hawk does nothing but let out a screech. In those crowded taverns where the yingling flows, and people now sat in a dead silence, only broken by sorrow and anger and the yearning for vengeance, many were left wondering, when will it happen again? I-70, that constant stream of uncertainty, yes, that lifeline, yet that endless stream of anxiety, a steady hypervigilance took form over this place, paranoia pumping through that stream of consciousness, just waiting, waiting, waiting for it to happen again. And the way things were going, Colby might as well have been a weather vane, predicting when and if it would soon rain down upon a greater nation. I guess this is the worst we've seen in this country since Starkweather, said Arvid McFarland, father of the victim Larry McFarland referring to the 21-year-old Nebraskan and his 14-year-old girlfriend who had stolen her father's guns, and after their own winter rampage just 100 miles north of Colby that left 11 people dead in what will become one of the most sensationalized crimes of the 20th century. The sewer pipe of America runs right through Kansas, said farmer Dale Seaman, wearing a seedlot cap and coveralls. You just don't know what's coming down the sewer pipe next. It makes me madder than hell. These killers just had to be mad dogs. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic, Season 2. Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror. Think, feel, and understand the world around you with Spoon River Gothic Podcast, because we go where the others don't. We dive deeper. And if you want to plunge even deeper into our true crime tales, please subscribe to Spoon River Gothic Agency, that's SRG Agency, at www.patreon.com slash Spoon River Gothic Podcast, and access the Spoon River Gothic Podcast case file for bonus weekly episodes available on Spotify, and also included in the Patreon case file are investigative materials, such as exclusive audio interviews, trial footage, police files, court documents, photos, diagrams, and more to accompany each Season 2 episode of Death Rides the Highway. 
And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It means more than you know in this cutthroat world. And until next time, work hard, party hard, keep a vigilant eye over your shoulder, and don't forget to watch each other's backs. This is a sideways world we are living in. And again, that's www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Subscribe now, because there's always more to the story. Ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet for anyone to see? More than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, and even information about your family members is all being compiled by data brokers and sold to the highest bidders online. That means anyone on the web, criminal or investigator, can get your private details, which, as true crime enthusiasts know all too well, increases your risk of identity theft, phishing scams, harassment, stalking, and unwanted phone calls. As a podcast that exists publicly and shares our opinions online, we are hyper aware of safety and security, and all this data being so easily searchable on the internet can have real-life consequences. This is why Spoon River Gothic is proud to partner with Delete Me, the number one service in online data removal. Delete Me finds and removes any information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Their dedicated team finds and removes your personal info from the largest people search databases and helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, stalking, and phishing scams in the process. That's why I personally recommend Delete Me for protecting yourself and your personal information. Sign up at joindeleteme.com spoonriver and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. As part of their subscription service, you will even receive personalized privacy reports showing what they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Their experts are always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want accessible online. To put it simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web and making your personal profile no longer anyone's to sell. So join us at deleteme.com spoonriver because no one wants to be a victim nor a suspect. So get protected and the next time a case hits too close to home, you won't find yourself asking the stranger on the other end of the phone, how did you get my number? Go to joindeleteme.com spoonriver and get started today.